You're listening to the Discriminology Podcast, the podcast that arms you with the knowledge and the tools to dismantle discrimination. With me, one of your hosts, Malik Selah. Hello, hi, welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Back to Discriminology, um, the podcast, the one and only podcast. If you haven't tuned into our previous episode that we dropped last week, please go listen to that and then come back. We'd love to have you. Okay, so this is episode four um, and it's called Hypersegregation. Welcome to Long Island, New York. Um, we'll also be talking about other places in New York. But this episode is going to be about um, the racial discrimination and segregation um, that has uh, festered in communities all over our state and all over the country. We'll be taking a look um, back in history from when these things kind of started and how they started and how it, they're still reflected in communities um, today. Uh, so we have a special guest this episode, once again, who will be introduced um, later on. But first, I want to introduce um, my friends and my co-hosts. Hey, everyone. It's Sandra. Welcome back. What's up, everybody? It's Malik. Welcome back to the show. Um, so I'll get right into introducing our special guest. So for this episode, we really wanted to bring on somebody who not only lived in Long Island and knows, knows what it's like to grow up as a person of color, but also has the background understanding of racial discrimination. So my friend, Jasmine Rashid. As I said, she grew up in Long Island, and she studied peace and conflict studies at Swarthmore College. She went on to intern at Erase Racism here in Long Island, and she now works in impact investing as a director of advocacy and strategic partnerships for the Candy Group out of Oakland, California. So Jasmine, it is great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you, fam. What's up? Welcome, Jasmine. Yay. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. So, I mean, that was a quick rundown of what you bring to the table, but can you just go into further detail of kind of what qualifies you to speak on these issues? Yeah, nothing. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, so like you said, I was born and raised on Long Island, um, it, which is, for people who know it, a very strange place when it comes to race relations, which we will get into further today. Um, but born and raised in Farmingdale, um, went off to college at Swarthmore and really started getting into the decarceration movement, started getting into really studying race relations in terms of global instances of apartheid. Um, and once I graduated, it was actually a Congressman John Lewis fellow, rest in peace to the late great Congressman John Lewis. Um, so I was in the city of Atlanta, I was studying uh, human rights, civil rights, and this opportunity came up. This was also the time with family separation at our southern border was all over the news, right? And there started becoming these questions around how is this happening? Who's supporting this? Like who's funding the fact that there's children locked up in cages and families being separated? Um, and as someone who had a background in kind of financial activism, the answer really was, you know, we are in that when we have our bank accounts in our JP Morgan Chase, in our Wells Fargo, in our Bank of America, that money is then being lended out to fund private prisons, immigrant detention centers. Um, so the past two years, I've been helping run a campaign. Um, the initiative is called Real Money Moves. The broader campaign is called Families Belong Together to get bank financing out of private prisons, which has been 
um, oddly successful. And that's, that's really how it comes to this conversation as partially um, an organizer, someone who works in impact investing, which is this other weird field of, um, you know, working with uh, super high net worth folks who are interested in things like racial justice and moving their capital to black and brown communities and small businesses. And we can't forget to mention that Jasmine was one of the focal points in organizing alongside of Malik and I, our first Black Lives Matter protest in Farmingdale. Yeah, can't forget about that. That was a dope experience. I haven't been back to back to Farmingdale in years. And then when I did come back, I was quarantined with family and, you know, the uprises started, started happening and Malik reached out like, all right, you're back. We have to do something. And bam. Now you guys are out here continuing the work, and I am honored to continue you watching you guys on that journey. So let's dive right in. So it's clear, we all know it, that there's segregation still on Long Island. So let's get right into examples and let's start the discussion. For sure. Yeah. So it's interesting because I think that there's this misconception that in the North, in New York, right, like our release relationships are better than if we were in the deep south or the south, which just has never been the reality um, of this. Long Island, Nassau County, and Suffolk County. Um, for folks who don't know, Long Island has four counties, Nassau, Suffolk, and technically Queens and Brooklyn, but for all intents and purposes, when we say Long Island, we're talking about Nassau and Suffolk. Um, consistently in the top 10 most segregated places in the country, right? And so you see it today, right? Seeing is believing. If you're on Long Island, you can get in the car, or if you're not, you can go on Google Maps and you can go to um, the intersection where Garden City meets Hempstead. So Hempstead, we look at the school district, it's 2% white, right? 98% people of color. Well, Garden City is like 90% white. Um, median property value of Hempstead, again, historically black and brown, somewhere around like 300,000. Garden City, which is historically white, we're pushing like 800K a million. Um, so because our schools on Long Island are funded by our property taxes, that means that white students at a school like Garden City, they get to have upwards of $6,000 more per student invested in them compared to students at a school like Hempstead, Black and Latino students. So majority white schools, majority white neighborhoods are better resource. Um, even from things like they have more uh, advanced classes and it's this, very, very clear cycle in which you see housing discrimination, which causes segregation in schools, which then influences education and opportunities for college, which then leads to what kind of jobs can you get? And then jobs leads to income, right? And then from income, we go back to housing options. So it's a cycle to me of housing, school, um, employment, and so on and so forth. Um, and I want to note that the racial wealth gap isn't unique to Long Island, right? Like this is a national issue um, where the income of black Americans is like 60% that of white Americans, but the black wealth is like five to 7% of white people today. And that's because of what we call generational wealth, um, which we can attribute almost entirely to the mid 20th century federal housing policies. Um, and that's what makes Long Island unique is just how deep those federal housing policies really run in the very formation of Long Island itself. So um, Jasmine, can you talk a little bit about um, maybe if you, if you have uh, 
some detail or we'll talk a little bit more about how this how you saw this or experienced this maybe growing up in the neighborhood that you did or maybe going to the schools that you did when you were a young kid do you do you can you recall how this maybe uh, would have affected you personally for sure so um i'm unique on long island and that i am a um mixed race south asian eastern european um, first generation who my mom is born and raised on Long Island in the Levittown area where um, we'll, we'll get into Levittown because that's a case study in itself. Um, and my dad is from Bangladesh and he met my mom on his second day um, in New York City in Queens. Very cute story. But they had come back to Long Island to look for housing um, because my, my mom's parents were there and they had started looking in places like Merrick. Um, which again has been trending in the news recently because of uh, White Lives Matter protests, so on and so forth. But they tried to look for housing in, in Merrick um, and were, it became very clear very quickly that they were steered to the black and brown areas, right? So near the, near the highway, um, they just weren't, they said there just were no openings in South Merrick where they were looking, they were pushed to the North. Um, obviously you guys know how the story ends. I ended up in Farmingdale. Um, more specifically, North Massapequa, which is how I went to school with these wonderful people, Malik and Sandra. Um, but still, it's a school that's, you know, overwhelmingly white, um, Italian and Irish. And then um, South Farmingdale is predominantly Latinx. And then basically everyone is coming from North Amityville um, is black. And so while we went to a diverse school, it was segregated within the school because these kids are coming from very different income levels, very different lived experiences and backgrounds and just where they go home to. Um, and within the school being run by predominantly, or I would say almost all white teachers, administration, um, you really saw how there was a hierarchy so that people who were in the school, if they were people of color, you know, they felt like, and this is speaking from my own experience, but you feel like, at worst, an outsider, and at best, a guest, never actually integral to the community. Yeah, Jasmine, you brought up that your parents were steered to the Black and Brown communities. Um, for our listeners that aren't really aware or familiar with racial steering, can you just kind of elaborate on what that is and how that came to be? Because it sounds very illegal. Mad illegal. <laughs> it does sound illegal, doesn't it? Um, I actually, I'll take a step back and I'll go into some of that federal housing policy that really set the stage for what we call racial steering by real estate agents. So, all right. Well, with that, first of all, I want to note that we'll often talk about the history of Long Island. Long Island's history started before white people. Um, and that's a fact that I didn't learn until I was much older. And it's why we have towns like Massapequa, Merrick, um, Setauket, Rockaway, Canarsie, Manhasset, Montauk, like these are all the names of indigenous tribes in the 1600s um, until I believe the mid 1600s when European um, colonizers came and bought the land from them, but they didn't actually know the land was being bought. It was a whole scam. Um, and so they were pushed off Long Island, but we continue to keep their names. And then also Long Island has a history where we had the largest slave population um, of any rural urban area in the North during the colonial era. But I digress. We'll jump to the parts when white people actually came to Long Island. So I mentioned before that there's this town called Levittown, and it's called Levittown because it was the development of this company, Levitt & Co. 
so during the 1950s, the government, the Federal Housing Administration, subsidized home in the suburbs. Um, at the same time as in New York City, uh, it was becoming more people of color because there was the great migration happening and black folks were coming up north to Manhattan and Brooklyn. Um, so we saw something called white flight, right? And that's where white families could come to developments that are brand new suburban American dream homes like Levittown and purchase extremely affordable housing um, under the condition, and I wrote this down so I don't get it wrong, that they didn't sell or lease to quote, those who were not members of the Caucasian race. Um, so this was post-World War II. This is where the GI Bill only benefited white service members too. So they're getting all of these federal subsidies and essentially that those restrictions where they couldn't sell or lease to non-white people was what we call restrictive covenants. So that's happening in the 1950s, 1960s. It's not until 1968, which again, if we think about it, like our, parents and their parents, like, this was not that long ago. Um, so 1968 Fair Housing Act passed. In the meantime, Black and brown people who were trying to move to Long Island were restricted to certain neighborhoods um, and had to pay more for their homes. And so we then saw what's called redlining, um, where a federal agency marks off areas where Black people live and then refuse to insure mortgages um, in those areas. So we see this happening, right? So these white neighborhoods are getting um, increasingly white, black neighborhoods getting increasingly black, and the money from the federal government is only going to one of those, which is the first. Fast forward to the late 60s, and technically black people are legally allowed to buy in places like Levittown, but what Malik mentioned before, there's this thing called racial steering, um, which is when real estate agents just won't show houses in the area um, to to folks who are looking to move into a place that is segregated. Um, and they'll just claim that there aren't openings or that it's out of their price range and banks won't give them loans. Um, sure, but for argument's sake, black people could still technically move to Levittown. However, and I'm sorry that I'm like thing after thing, but it's just the cycle does not end. <laughs> um, and there's this book called The Color of Law that I, I think folks should really check out because it lays this out really, really um, compellingly is that while this is all happening, white families have bought those houses for like $100,000, right, in the 50s and 60s, in today's money, um, which could have easily been afforded by any Black working class family at the time. But since then, the homes have appreciated in equity, which means that in just two generations, the worth of the houses have tripled. Um, so that's what I've referred to before of generational wealth that can now be passed down to white children. So even, for example, if today, we're all growing up in the same neighborhood, um, you know, and a, a Black family has a greater household income, they're still going to have less wealth than a white family because of that generational wealth and because property and housing was able to pass on for generations. So that's how wealth um, was lost through these policies, even though they were only technically legal for, for a short period of time, um, they still have ramifications in what Long Island looks like today. It's a cycle. All this is a cycle. And this is what causes um, these types of things, racial steering, redlining, um, housing discrimination, etc., to continue. And so I was just going to jump into my little anecdotal, you know, thing about New Rochelle, where I grew up. Um, for those of you who don't know, New Rochelle is a suburban um, city in the county of Westchester, which is um, right outside New York City. New Rochelle is seven minutes from the Bronx. Um, so it's, it is, and 
due to the same things that Jasmine um, kind of alluded to when she was talking due to uh, racial steering and redlining. You know, these were um, pushing through New York City, Black people pushing through and, and north of New York City um, and, you know, ended up in New Rochelle. And so New Rochelle, in comparison to a lot of, well, definitely in comparison to other cities in Westchester County, is considered one of the, you know, more diverse um, cities. Uh, because places like Chappaqua and peaks, you know, these up, that are further up north in Westchester, closer to upstate, not as diverse, very segregated. Um, but New Rochelle uh, definitely has a, a, a mix as far as population goes. You know, I went to a, I went to public school my whole life, and my high school is very big um, student population and a very uh, big mix of students. However, these kind of things still in terms of racial um, discrimination in housing and redlining, racial steering do happen in New Rochelle. And where I actually grew up, my house is um, right up the block from uh, where the Lincoln School used to be. And the Lincoln School is famous. If you haven't, if you don't know that, I would suggest you Google Lincoln School, New Rochelle, and like uh, the history, you know, it'll all come up. It was um, the reason why a lot of historians refer to New Rochelle as Little Rock of the North. Um, because this was a big Supreme Court decision that dealt with um, integrating public schools that followed the famous uh, Brown versus Board of Education um, uh, case in 1950. So this was seven years after that uh, court decision, court case uh, decision to integrate public schools. And Lincoln School was an elementary school that was in uh, on Lincoln Avenue that was predominantly 94% black. And when this uh, federal law passed, um, the school obviously became integrated. However, the white families that were living in the neighborhood um, where Lincoln School was located were um, not pleased, to say the least, uh, with this integration of this school. And so they uh, pretty much, it, was not, it wasn't an uprising traditional sense. It was, you know, a legal uprising. They filed lawsuits and things of that nature to, um, you know, to, to maintain the segregation of this neighborhood and of this school and so and as a result because you know they obviously the lawsuits didn't they fell through and they didn't win any of those suits uh they left the neighborhood they migrated out of this this neighborhood where lincoln school was located and took their kids with them and their kids ended up going to public schools outside of that outside of the neighborhood and they were allowed to do that but black students were not black students had to go to this school because that's the neighborhood that they lived in and so these things kind of carried on um, and they carry they flow into what we see today in new rochelle which are a lot of the more urban i put those words in quotes neighborhoods um in downtown new rochelle predominantly black um, the public housing is way, way more underfunded. Um, the school systems are considered, uh, the schools, I'm rather, are considered, you know, uh, less adequate, uh, also underfunded. Um, teachers are paid less, et cetera, et cetera, uh, in comparison to the uh, predominantly white neighborhoods in the north end of New Rochelle. Um, and so me going to a public school that was diverse, um, you know, within the walls of the school because it was such a big population, you know, I, I did kind of see how the, while the school itself might have been a little bit more diverse, you know, you really do see the effects of these neighborhoods and housing and the, and, and, and the real estate market being racist in these ways and how these, that affects the education that these students get even in, at the same school. So um, yeah, I just wanted to talk mention that. I also kind of want to get, um, so obviously we touched on Jasmine as a person of color, Sid's obviously a person of color. Um, Sandra, Jasmine, and, and I went to the same high school, so I kind of wanted to get Sandra's perspective on what it was like to be on the other side of that experience. 
Yeah, so I always grew up thinking that Farmingdale was much more diverse than it actually is. So I feel like a lot of the things, like a lot of these issues didn't really come to my attention, I think, until older, especially like when we, when the three of us were talking about, you know, um, when we were planning the BLM protest. So we were just talking about different school experiences. And I was like, wait a minute, this doesn't line up as much as I thought it did. And then we got into the conversation with the Creamers on how, wait a minute, we don't have any people, teachers of color, you know, we really, we really couldn't name it. We named three and we have what, four elementary schools, a middle school and a high school, and we could only name three. So I know that that's another thing where we're working on, on the side, you know, we're working with Real Harmony and things like that in the Farmingdale School District. But yeah, so my experience, I feel was like, I thought was the same, but it really was different. And I, now looking back, it really is all like, I'm realizing everything that happened. And yeah, no, Farmingdale wasn't as diverse and as I thought it was. So I think we dragged out a lot of issues and brought them to light. And if you don't really have a course of action, it can almost be a little bit depressing. So Jasmine, do you have any plan of action for whatever walk of life you are, whether you're just a, a citizen in a neighborhood or you feel like you have any sense of authority, like what action can be taken place to kind of rectify these issues? Yeah, there's a ton. <laughs> Let me see if I can probably touch on and do justice to just a few. Um, so one of the things I had mentioned before um, I'll, I'll continue on the subject of schools, right? We're talking about schools. Um, the way that school districts are currently drawn is that we see we produce schools that are, again, 98% people of color or 98% white, right? Or almost 80% of the kids have reduced or free lunches because they're low income, whereas a school that's completely everyone is in the highest tax bracket. Um, if school district lines were actually redrawn along town and city lines, it's a little complicated, but if you know Long Island, there's like your actual neighborhood, then there's a town, then there's a, the city, and then there's a county. But if it was drawn along those 15 lines, then we would create districts that are way less segregated by race and income, which is better for everyone, right? Because that means lower taxes for everyone. It means actual diversity in your schools. Um, and when you have more diverse schools, everyone wins. And it's not just schools, right? It's also just about housing and, and the local economy. There was a study that came out a few years ago that if Long Island didn't have the racial wealth gaps that it does, as an economy, we would be 240 billion stronger because people wouldn't be disenfranchised. They wouldn't be relying on um, this support from the government in a lot of ways because they would have more opportunities to thrive and succeed. And so, yeah, just want to put out for people who are maybe skeptics of whether or not they should be down with the movement, down with the fight. Um, it's better for everyone. And um, we're just past those days. Um, so that's one thing, school redistricting. Another is obviously to vote for progressive politicians. Um, Sid had mentioned affordable housing in her community. We have virtually no real affordable housing. Um, just a few years ago, Garden City, I believe, got sued because they blocked affordable housing proposals because they didn't want people from Hempstead encroaching on their neighborhood. Um, so we just have really, really low rates of affordable housing, and it's pushed a lot of people further into um, these marginalized and low-income neighborhoods. Uh, with that, 
ooh, fun point I always bring up whenever I can is that it's 2020, which means it's a census year. Um, if for folks who don't know the census, essentially every 10 years there is a count where um, people are expected to put their um, their identity, their racial group, you know. There's a lot of distrust around the census, which I totally understand because it is in some ways run by the government, um, especially acknowledging for undocumented folks. But I think it's important to know that the census is run by a completely different agency, not connected to the federal government, and they don't distribute any information. But if you don't vote, I mean, sorry, if you don't fill out the census, um, which you do online, which is free, then you're not counted. So you can go on, oh, there's this program called racial.map. Um, just Google it. I don't know if that's actually what it's called, but it'll come up if you Google racial.map. And it took the data from the 2010 census and basically laid it on a map. So you pull up Long Island on this map, you zoom in, and you could see exactly where along the highways, along the town lines, um, there's completely black demographic town, completely Latino, completely Asian, completely white, um, and there's some dispersing throughout. We want to see how that's changed over time because we know that as a country, we're becoming way browner and blacker. Long Island's obviously becoming way browner and blacker, but so is racial inequality. And so if we don't have the good data on the ground of what's actually happening in this last decade of how things have changed, of you know who is actually being represented by our politicians, then they're not going to be accountable to us and we're not going to get funding in the same way. Um, and you can also support great organizations like we mentioned earlier, Erase Racism, who um, a lot of the fun facts and statistics that I'm pulling, I pulled from there because they're on the ground doing the work, um, as well as supporting just organizations who are doing real on the ground mutual aid activist work. Like I kind of played Long Island for a while because I, I live in Oakland, California now, which is, you know, home of the Black Panthers. It's the place where really you see racial justice organizing in action. Then I came back in the midst of these uprising and there's so many incredible organizers on the ground. Um, folks may have seen that there's this woman, I believe her name is Jennifer McLeggan. Um, she's in Valley Stream. And she is a Black woman with a young daughter who has been completely harassed by her white neighbors, right? Valley Stream is a very, very white neighborhood. Um, and I'm talking like dead animals, feces, like neighbors threatening her um, with their assault rifles, you know scaring her in the night, the town not picking up her garbage. Um, and folks showed out, like the community, the black and brown communities of Long Island, the progressive white folks and activists have been showing out and supporting her every day for weeks. Um, I've been following it on social media and trying to learn more about the activists and educating myself about the folks who are from where I'm from and are really on the ground doing the work to make Long Island better and aren't like me and just ran away. Um, so that includes people like, again, Malik and Sandra and people who stayed in the community and are now making sure um, it's better for the next generation. That's really our goal because like, we, we need to start somewhere. And I always say, I think um, starting with the school districts is the best way to start. So when I was looking into the Newsday investigation, I found something that was completely alarming. So Long Island has 291 communities and most of its black residents live in just 11. So again, Going back to that, we need to start somewhere and we got to start with the communities and we're going to start with the school districts. So, Okay, so Jasmine, um, elaborate a little bit on uh, whether or not you think these, these issues of racial steering, uh, redlining, you know, racial discrimination and housing um, are getting better or worse, the same, elaborate. 
Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm, I do the work I do because I think fundamentally I'm an optimist, right? Like I want to see things get better. Man, Long Island is just the reality is we have twice as many extreme segregated schools now than we did a decade ago, right? Like segregation, housing segregation, um, in terms of the populations of our school is actually getting more severe as time goes on. And you can still see too, right? Like let's take the COVID pandemic. Black people are only 11% of Long Island's population, but for every one white person who um, loses their life to this pandemic, three black people do, right? Because 50% of um, our black and Latinx workers on the island are frontline workers, right? Um, so all this to say, we're definitely seeing a trend um, and the nation is really starting to pick up on what's going on on Long Island in terms of those pieces that you just mentioned. There was a New York Times article last year called the Jim Crow South. No, Long Island today, which is really embarrassing. Um, I don't think anyone wants to be associated with the Jim Crow South. But again, you know, I think that there's still a lot of deep-seated fear and distrust um, among our different racial groups. We are a community that was deeply affected by 9-11, obviously, so there's always been a fair amount of xenophobia, a fair amount of racism. But the instances, like when we say words like racial steering, it really isn't just about like the experience and anecdotes of people of color in Long Island. So in 2019, there was a Newsday investigation, um, and essentially Newsday put a bunch of its reporters undercover, white and black and Asian and Latino reporters undercover, set them up with mics and then went to hundreds of real estate agents. And what they found was that white buyers got an average of 50% more listings than black buyers, right? And some agents declined to do business in areas that had minority populations. Um, and if you go on newsday.com, they made this investigation open to everyone. It's, a, it's not behind the paywall because it's just so um, jarring and staggering to listen to some of these recordings and this, this language by the real estate agent saying things like to the, white, to the white people who they think are buyers who are actually undercover agents, you know, see who the moms are that are hanging out at the corner store, you know, follow the school buses. Like you wouldn't want to go there after dark. Like they're not using the explicit racial language, but you still see time and time again these kind of um, dog whistles about why they won't show white people housing in predominantly people of color neighborhoods or vice versa. Um, so I would really, really recommend folks check out that investigation um, and all the compelling evidence that's come of this problem that still exists in our communities and continues to shape who our neighbors are. It definitely uh, sounds like a good homework assignment to uh, encourage our listeners to check out that article. I think that was the whole goal of this episode was because, I mean, you bring up modern day segregation. That's kind of has some shock value to it if you speak to the average person. So I think all these things kind of help validate that. As you said, this isn't like an anecdotal thing or this isn't like, oh, this is how I feel about what's going on. Like, no, this this is these are the statistics like these are this is the breakdown of the community. Yeah, it's very it's very black and white. Oh, it's facts. Straight yeah. facts. I definitely learned a lot. This was a, it was great to have you back in the fold with us um, and to work together again on something of substance. You're saying we don't work on things of substance when we're just talking and hanging out? Oh, Ooh. there we go. Snap. Substance as a protest and a educational podcast, but substance enough. That's a lot of substance. Jasmine, thank you so much. Thank you. 
and for dropping so much knowledge. This was amazing. Thank and you. now we can't wait to have you back again because we got you once, we're gonna get you again. <laughs> I got you, I got you. All right, thanks guys. See you later, Jasmine. Later, Jasmine. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Discriminology Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and to follow us on Instagram at Discriminology underscore podcast or on Facebook at Discriminology 3. Until next time, peace.